God speaks to us through the Bible, and we speak to God through prayer. So, uh, prayer and word, this word, or prayer and scripture, prayer and the Bible, always go together. So we speak to God through prayer, and God speaks to us through the Bible. So, prayer and the word are interdependent. Okay, prayer needs the word, the word needs prayer. It works together. Prayer and God's word are, are maybe his two greatest means of grace that he uses to conform us into the image of his son. So if you're a Christian, this is what God is doing with you according to Romans 8. Okay, he is conforming you to the image of his son. Colossians 3 verse 10 says the same thing. So he has saved you. He has redeemed you. He has saved you from the path that you were headed. That path was to God's wrath and his destruction and hell. Because of your sinfulness, he has saved you from that, taken you off that path, and you're on a new path. And on this new path, what God is doing with you is He is conforming you to the image of His Son. Or we could say it this way, He is making you more like Jesus. And we could say that the two primary ways, for certain two ways, but maybe the two primary ways that God is doing that to you, conforming you and making you more like Jesus, is through prayer and the Word. So they work together. The, the, Bible, the Bible teaches us to pray. The Bible teaches us how to pray. The Bible teaches us what to pray for. The Bible teaches us what the basis for prayer is. The Bible encourages us to pray because... God hears our prayers. So we can't pray without the Bible. As well, prayer is, is applying the Bible to us and to others. Prayer is the repeating back to God His Word. So, so when we pray... We should be. We should be praying God's word back to him. The things that we're praying for and the things that we're asking for and the way that we pray, it's all rooted in God's word. So, so God, I know that you are, are in control right now and so I'm, I'm coming to you. How do you know that? You know that because God's word. You're repeating God's word back to him. God, um, please... Use whatever it is that I'm going through right now to make me more like Jesus. Well, you're repeating God's word back to him because he's told you in his word that he is through your trials and temptations and tests. He is making you more like Jesus. Or you're, you're praying and you're, and you're hopeful and you're asking God to do the very things that he has promised to do. So you can't pray. You don't know how to pray. You don't know what to pray for. There's no motivation to pray. There's no basis for prayer if you don't have God's word. So the two are always working together. Prayer and the word. So, the point of today's sermon is going to be, or my goal in the sermon today is to encourage us to pray and read God's Word. To pray and read God's Word. Understand this. If you settle to just do one of those and to just focus on one of those, it will not happen. Because they're interdependent. So if you resolve here at the beginning of, of 2012, I, I'm going to pray more this year. That's a great thing to want. I want this to be right. We've got all these resolutions at the beginning of the year. 
right? What we're going to put on and what we're going to put off. A good resolution is, I am going to pray more. But if your resolution is you're going to pray more, but it's not necessarily to read the Bible more, and that's just going to kind of stay on the shelf, you will not grow in your prayer life. Because prayer and the Word are interdependent. You'll run out of things to pray for. There will be no incentive to pray. Prayer will be boring. Prayer will be meaningless if you detach it from God's Word. But as well, if you resolve this year, and this would be a good resolution to, I'm going to read God's Word more. A prayer, that's 2013. But this year, I'm going to read God's Word more. If you try to do that, disconnected from prayer, you will, you will be unsuccessful. You won't do it. In fact, what, what do you need to do every time you read God's Word? What you need to do first is to pray. We're praying that God would help us to understand this Word. Because you, you will not understand this Bible if God, through His Holy Spirit, is not helping you to understand this Bible. It'd be like going this afternoon and watching a foreign film with no subtitles. You're, you're going to be lost because the words that are in this book are spiritually discerned. And so you need God's help. You need His Holy Spirit to help you understand His Word. And so we must be, must be in prayer. So my hope is that you would resolve not to just pray, not to just read God's Word, but maybe 2012 is, is a year for you. I hope it's a year for us as a church where we become a more prayerful people and we become a, a people who are more of, of the Word. So the incentive for all of that for today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. We've read these before. We just finished up a series on, on 1 John. So we're going to go back and look at this text again. We're going to focus especially on verse 14. But let's read it again. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, here's where we're going to focus, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So in some ways, the second part of verse 14 is just a repeat of the second part of verse 13. You see that? I am writing to you, young men. I write to you, young men. Because you have overcome the evil one, you have overcome the evil one. But there's a question that is left after you read verse 13. The question is, after you read, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The question is, well... How have these young men overcome the evil one? What is it that, that makes them so special? How have they managed to overcome the evil one? And when he repeats that in verse 14, John answers the question, how they have overcome the evil one? Because you are strong. How are they strong? The Word of God abides in you. So it's real simple. He says, young men, the Word of God abides in you. Because the Word of God abides in you, you are strong. Because you are strong, you have overcome the evil one. And so the question that he's answering, that is left after we read verse 13, is how can these mere humans overcome the evil one? 
devil, Lucifer, Satan. How does the, the natural overpower, conquer the supernatural? In order for us to, to get the weight of that question and to get the weight of the answer to that question, we need to understand how powerful our enemy is as people. Satan. There's a movie called The Usual Suspects and one of the characters in that movie says, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And what happens is we don't take Satan, we don't take the devil, we don't take sin, we don't take demons, we don't take evil as seriously as we ought to. Oh, that's just something that is in Hollywood. That's just something that, that, that real charismatic, Pentecostal type churches are into. And we neglect it and don't understand then the situation that we're in and how powerful our enemy is. We actually have a couple songs that we sing here at Veritas that talk about the power of, of Satan. Right, we have one song called um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One of the lyrics is For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. When we first started singing that song, I had a hard time singing that because I felt like I was praising Satan. Have you ever felt like that? Because there's, there's like a whole lyric, there's a whole uh, uh, a verse in that song that is devoted to singing about how great and powerful Satan is. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And when you sing that, it sounds kind of weird to sing that. Right? Does anybody else? Like on, on earth is not his equal. It almost sounds like you're complimenting him and you don't want to sing that. The song goes on, right? One little word shall fell him. And it talks about Jesus and the, the, the power of Jesus and, and how he wins the battle. But in that song, there is an affirmation that the evil one is, he's powerful. We have another song we sing called The Lord Will Provide. And there's a verse in that song about Satan. He tells us we're weak. Our hope is in vain. The good that we seek shall never be obtained. A whole verse dedicated to understanding the power of Satan and his work. And so we need to understand that, that it is a big deal to overcome the evil one. That we need to overcome the evil one. And, and so then we're set up to hear, okay, John, how? How? What is it about this? We read verse 13. These young men, and he, he's singling them out, but he's speaking to, to all the, the Christians. Okay, how is it that they have overcome the evil one? That's a, that's a big deal, right? I just, I just watched The Exorcist, and I want to overcome that. I didn't, but I'm saying if you did. How do I actually do that? How do I overcome the evil one? And then he answers it and says, well, this is how you do it. You need to be strong. And how are you strong? The word of God must abide in you. So there's a difference. And the question goes out to all of us, but especially young men, because he does single them out there. So if I, if I can say, everyone, ask yourself this question. But then if I can also, within that, narrow in on, on young men and ask this, are you strong in the Word or are you strong in the world? What kind of strength is it 
John says, if you're going to overcome the evil one, if you're going to fight the good fight, if you're going to win this race, the kind of strength you need to have is the word of God abiding in you. The kind of strength that John talks about it is not, is not benching 250 pounds. The kind of strength that John talks about is, is not being a, a, a powerful, determined, uh, persuasive, intelligent, capable person. You see, that is your strength, maybe. That you take initiative, and these are good qualities, that you take initiative, and that you are aggressive, and that you make a plan, and you're very determined, and, and you, you follow through, and he doesn't mention any of those things, which are good masculine qualities, but that's not what he says is the kind of strength. What, what he says in the question for us, everyone, especially you young men, is if you're going to overcome the evil one, here's what he's asking, is this, is this in here, is this in you? Is the Word of God abiding in you? Here's what it means to have the Word of God abiding in you. Do you know God's Word? Do you believe God's Word? That's what that means. What does it mean to have the Word of God abiding in me so that it's always here, so that it's with me, so that it's a part of me? It means that you know God's Word. You don't just know God's Word, but you believe God's Word. It's the kind of strength that John talks about in his gospel account in John 15, 7, where Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, the same phrase as in 1 John chapter 2, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It's that same kind of strength that is not a strength according to the world, but is a strength in the, in the Word. Is that how you are strong? Or are you weak? Maybe you're seen as strong even by other Christians. You're seen as strong because you're, you're always here. You never miss a Sunday. Or you can talk a good game. Or you've read a lot of books. Or you're successful. Or you're looked up to and admired. None of that counts if God's word does not abide in you. Are we strong in the word? What John says is if you have that kind of strength where the word of God abides in you, you will overcome Satan. You will overcome the evil one. So here's some incentive. Let's look at the activity of Satan and specifically how God's word abiding in us is going to conquer him and overcome him. There are basically two activities of Satan that the Bible talks about. Accusation and temptation. Accusation and temptation. He accuses us of the sin that we've already done, and he tempts us with sin that we haven't yet done. But he doesn't have a lot of, a lot of tactics. I mean, they're good ones. They're good ones, and if you find one that works, you stick with it. But what we read about in the Bible is Satan's work involving accusing and tempting. So how does the word of God abiding in us help us to overcome the evil one in his accusation, in his temptation? Let's look first at accusation. His accusation, his accusatory role. We learn about this real specifically in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 verses 10 and 11. Listen to this description of this activity of Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser 
of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So in Revelation chapter 12, Satan receives the title, the accuser. And the reason that he's called the accuser is because it says that he is right now. Right now, as we speak and as I preach this sermon, he is somehow, some way, before God. Right now, this is happening. He is before God and day and night... One of the things that Satan is doing is he is accusing. If you're a Christian, he's accusing you. He's accusing you and he's accusing me before God. Here's the next verse in Revelation 10 that talks about how that accusation is conquered. And it's a parallel to 1 John chapter 2, verse 14 that we're reading today. And they, that's the accused, that's you and me, and they have conquered him. So there it is again. Overcome the evil one, conquered him. It's the same Greek word. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Wow. So, According to Revelation chapter 12, how do we overcome the accusations of Satan? Well, it says, well, here's God's work by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. By Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's what God has done. Well, what is it that, that we do by the word of their testimony? What is your testimony? Your testimony is the Word abiding in you. The Gospel abiding in you. Your testimony is, I am saved. Satan is accusing, but your testimony is, I am saved. I have been washed clean. I have been pardoned. I have been delivered. I have been rescued. We have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. So here's the problem. Dead batteries. Testing. Testing. Okay. So if Satan wants to accuse us if Satan wants to accuse us If Satan wants to accuse us right now in heaven before God, he doesn't have to make anything up. When, when he tells God that, that I'm dirty and rotten and vile and stinky, he's not making it up. It's true. And all I can do is just nod and say, yes, that's true. Look, God, look what they did this morning. And you are a just God, right? You are a holy God. And no sin will go unpunished. Correct, God? That's the accusation that Satan makes. Look at this person. They are worthless. They are sinful. They are losers. Aren't you going to do something about that? Are you just going to let that go? I mean, you threw me out of heaven. What are you going to do with them? And so he makes these accusations and he builds this case. And, and you and I, we don't have a case. There's nothing that we can plead on our behalf. I didn't, it wasn't intentional, and I didn't mean to, or God, you misunderstood me, or they took it the wrong way. I mean, it's just hang your head, and it's guilty, right? So that's the problem that we're in when we understand the sinfulness of our sin. It's that the accusations that Satan is making, they are true. So how does the Word of God abiding in us conquer these accusations of Satan? This is how you conquer that. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, you believe the Gospel until you die.
the Word, the good news, the gospel. That's abiding in me right now. And the word that is abiding in me right now says that while Satan's accusations are true, Jesus is my... And John had just talked about this in verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter before. Jesus is my propitiation and he is my advocate he's my propitiation and he is my advocate so I don't conquer the evil one and his accusations by impressing God and having money and prosperity and health and and, and wealth and a good reputation that's not how I conquer these accusations but a lot of people live like that there's a lot of these accusations that he's making. He's saying all the bad things about me. So if there's just more good things about me than bad things about me, maybe the scale will tip and God will be pleased with me and he'll take me into heaven. No, it's just, it's all bad. It's all bad. There is nothing good that Satan can say about you. So don't blame him there. You're making his case. There's nothing good that Satan can say about you inherently. So what we need is, because there's an accuser, we need somebody on the other side of God. We need an advocate, because we can't advocate for ourselves, because what am I going to say? There's nothing good that I can say about myself. So we need an advocate, and what has John said? John has said the advocate is Jesus, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says two things there. The Revelation 12 says that we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And in 1 John, he says, this is what the blood of the Lamb does. First, Jesus is our propitiation. Galatians 3 says that, that, that we, we are, are not cursed. Jesus was cursed for us. So Jesus died in our place and he bore the wrath of God that we should have to bear. He propitiated God. He satisfied God's justice and wrath in our place. So that we would no longer be under God's condemnation, but we could be adopted by God as sons and daughters because Jesus paid the penalty. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In Jesus, God condemned sin. Jesus died, satisfied God's wrath, propitiated God. He rose again, and now he is our advocate before God In heaven. And so it's like this. Here we are. And here is God the just. The Father. In heaven. And here is the accuser. Right? One of two. Satan's great tactics. Accusing us to God. Yelling in one of God's ears. If you will. Telling him about all the damnable things that we have done our entire lives, including today. And on the other side of God, speaking into his other ear, if you will, is Jesus. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is bringing up over and over and over and over again, the cross. 
I, I, know that that's, I know that's true. Yes, Eric did that. Yes, he did that. Yes, she did that. Yes, that deserves death. Yes, that deserves alienation from us. Yes, that is damnable. Yes, that is worthy of condemnation. Yes, yes, yes. But what is Jesus? How does he advocate? What does he present over and over and over again? Jesus does something like this to God the Father over and over and over again. He holds out his hands. He says, let us remember this. Let us remember this. Let us remember what these scars signify. That while they were yet sinners, I died for them. That I became sin so that they could become the righteousness of God. And over and over and over and over and over again, all of Satan's accusations just fall to the ground. Because Jesus is our advocate. And so 1 John 2.24, later in the same chapter, John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. There it is again. So we conquer the evil one by God's word abiding in us. And John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let the word abide in you. What word? What did you hear from the beginning? The gospel, the truth. Jesus is your propitiation. Jesus is your advocate. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, Satan's accusations are true. But you also know another truth that Jesus Christ died for you. And so if that word of God abides in you, if you are having faith, that's what that is. Having that word of the gospel and knowing it and believing it, that's called faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Same idea again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the way that we conquer the accusations of the evil one is by the word of the gospel abiding in us. Knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, which undoes all of Satan's accusations. That is the strength that we need to have. That is how a Christian needs to be strong. To know the gospel, to believe the gospel over and over and over again, abiding in us. So this is how it works. According to John, these are the steps. How does God's word strengthen us to conquer the accusations of the evil one? Jesus, the righteous one, dies in our place. That happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus, the righteous one, died in our place. Number two, the wrath of God is propitiated. It's diverted. It's satisfied. It was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. He died in our place. The wrath of God is propitiated. Jesus is then raised from the dead. And he now ascended to heaven and now intercedes for us as our advocate before God on the basis of the propitiation. So he's now there as an advocate. And then here's what happened to you. Here's how the word of God first came to you. Because that all happened right before you knew it and certainly before you believed it. That happened. But then one day, Christian, if you're not a Christian, this day might be right now. The Word of God came to you. The Gospel came to you. The good news of what Jesus had done and is doing came to you. Number five, in this way, we abide in Jesus by believing that Word. And He becomes our propitiation and our advocate. Number six, Satan 
accuses us of damning sin and tries to destroy us with guilt. And that's taking place right now. And now number seven, we, like the young men of 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, we overcome the evil one because we are stronger. We are stronger because the word of God, the gospel, abides in us. And we love that word and we love that gospel according to Revelation 12 verse 11 more than we love life itself. And that will be the word of our testimony until we die. The Christian just beats one drum over and over and over and over. The good news of the gospel. So what happens now is we overcome the evil one. We overcome Satan every single day as the Word of God abides in us, as we know the Word of God, as we believe the Word of God. Second, shorter, temptation. One we're perhaps more familiar with. So we've seen how we are strong to overcome the evil one and his accusations. How are we strong to overcome the evil one in regards to temptation? So this isn't about the sin that we've already done. What about the sin that, that we haven't done that, that, that we're being tempted to do? Maybe the first helpful thing to understand is in your Bible, the word for tempt and test is the same word. So the word for being tempted and the words for being tested are the same thing. God, James tells us, can tempt no one. So God is never tempting us to sin. There's nothing evil in God. There's no evil carrot that he has to dangle out in front of us. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But when Satan is tempting us to do evil, the second thing that is happening at the same time is God is testing our faith. So every time you and I are tempted to sin, our faith is being tested. So you can look at it this way. These are not biblical words, but maybe a concept would be helpful is think of little temptation and big temptation. There is little temptation. There is a temptation that you feel every day to do immoral things, to do ungodly things, do things or to think things or to say things that are not pleasing to God. We'll call those, though they may feel and are and strong, we'll call those little temptations. There are also big temptations to forsake our faith. Not just in a moment to not believe the good news and not believe the gospel and to fall into immoral behavior, but there are also major, major tests of your faith that God sends. And the great temptation when those tests come is to turn your back on God. So we're not just talking about the temptation when a guy late at night is, is flipping through the channels and he comes across a, a channel with something that he shouldn't be watching to stay on that channel. That is temptation. And it is a little temptation to do immoral behavior. But we're also talking about the temptation that comes with major tests that God brings into your life, like the loss of a loved one. Like a disease. Like divorce. Like the loss of livelihood. The loss of a job. The loss of provision. Like significant disappointment. Physical, emotional suffering. Pain. 
financial hardship, abandonment. Right? These, these enormous things that come into our life. And oftentimes there is a, a work that Satan is doing. And sin is leading to and causing. Everything from disease to natural disasters are the result of our great enemy Satan and sin and the fall. And so there's a temptation there that Satan is bringing like he brought to Job. And the temptation is to forsake your faith and to just say, you know what? I'm not, I don't want this Word of God abiding anymore. I'm not going to believe this Word of God anymore. I'm not going to believe the Gospel anymore. And God, whose hand is behind all of these things, the good and the bad, the sun and the rain, God is testing, same word, God is testing our faith. So how does the... Word of God abiding in us overcome the evil one's work in that. Well, understand, according to John chapter 8, Satan is called, in everything he does, whether it's accusing, whether it's tempting, he is a liar. Right? Satan, he cannot tell truth. There is no truth in him, John 8, 44 says. He is the father of lies. That's why it says that when people lie, it says you are like your father, the devil. So that is his work. And when he accuses us, right, there's kind of this passive lying that's going on. Because he's only telling half the story, right? He's telling the bad news, but he's not sharing the good news. I mean, Satan is not up there and, and, and making his case, talking about how bad and sinful we are, and, and, and he's not then shifting gears and, and saying, but remember, God, how gracious you are. No, that's, that's Jesus' role. So he's, he's kind of passively lying, though, in that he's not telling the whole truth. You know what that's like. Some of you were taught, like, well, don't volunteer information. Or when you're talking to somebody, and, you know, just, don't, just don't, don't bring it up. And as long as they don't ask, you know, very specifically, did you do this? As long as they don't ask that question, you're not really lying. But you sort of are. You sort of are. And so there is Satan, even in accusation, just telling half-truths. But when he is tempting, whether it's this immoral behavior that's dangling out in front of you, whether it's this trial in your life, like a disease or divorce or a loss of a loved one, he has basically two lies that he tells us. And again, it's not real complex, but they're, they're good lies that we fall for over and over again. And the lies that he tells us is God is bad and sin is better. Over and over and over again, the father of lies tempts us by lying and telling us that God is bad and sin is better. So when that trial comes, have you ever felt significant pain in your life? What is the father of lies saying? You know God is sovereign, right? You know he could stop this, right? You know that this is, it, it, Satan loves Calvinists. It's like, you don't do the whole, like, foreknowledge and maybe he's using it. A good Calvinist, like, God meant this. He caused this. It's for... It's like, you believe that, right? God's hand is behind this suffering right now. I mean, this is a part of God's purpose for you. So what is the lie? God is bad. God is not good. Would a good God really allow this? That's why some Christians, when they come into great pain and suffering, who did believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, changed their whole theology just to try to keep their concept of God together. 
Oh, he must be weak, and he, he doesn't have total control, because I just, can't, I just can't hold on to those two truths at the same time, that he is causing this, and he's good, and he loves me. So I've got to chuck the, he's causing this. He must not be in control. And a lot of Christians do that. But if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, you've got to hold on to both of those. God is causing this. His hand is behind it. He is willing it. He is ordaining it. And he is good. And you will not believe that and conquer the evil one unless the word of God abides in you that says God is good. He is good. He is good. This feels terrible. This is terrible. These circumstances are awful. There is nothing inherently good about this. But God is good. God is good. God is good. But the lie that Satan is tempting you with is God is bad. And the other way, when we're facing temptation, right, over and over and over again, sin is better. I could honor and glorify God right now, or I could commit this sin. And ultimately, you always, when you commit that sin, you do it because in that moment you believe his great lie. Sin is better. Now I could, I could do this. I could say this to this person right now. I could dwell and think these thoughts right now. I could do this to this person. I could watch this. I could write this. I could say this sin. If in that moment you believe that God and Jesus and the gospel is better, you don't sin. But in the moment, we believe the lie that sin is better. You need this sin. You deserve this sin. That's what the temptation in the garden, right? With Eve. Saw that it was tasty and pleasing to the eye. And, you know, Satan told her all the things it was going to be good for. And so she did it. The lie was sin is better. But the truth is, no, it's worse. It's worse. You ever wonder, have you struggled with sin? A particular sin. Over and over and over and over again. And you're like, right, the dog that returns to his vomit. And it makes no sense to you. Why do I keep doing this? Over and over and over again. And, and afterwards, every single time, you are sober-minded and you know the truth. That's why it just blows you away. Why you keep doing it over and over and over again. Because you know Jesus is better than this. God is better than this. This feels awful and terrible and I'm guilty and I'm ashamed and I've wounded God and I've sinned against Him and I, I hate this feeling and I've sinned against others. There's, just, there's no pleasure whatsoever. It was a moment of pleasure and now it's a week, weeks, months of just pain. So why do I do this over and over and over again? It's because the evil one is powerful and he has a very good lie that you are just ready to bite into. And the lie is, sin is better. And so over and over and over again, we believe sin is better. So this is simple. So how do you overcome that? Well, you need to be strong, John says. That makes sense. If you're going to overcome this, you can't be weak. You need to be strong. But how do you need to be strong? Is it willpower? You're going to just white knuckle it? You're going to just think happy thoughts? You're just going to distract yourself? You're just going to put you know, five different softwares on your computer? Have six people standing behind you every time you get on the internet? I mean, what are you going to do? Is this how you're going to be strong? Is this where the strength is going to come from? What does John say? He says, no, this is the kind of strength you need to have. The Word of God must abide in you. And if the Word of God abides in you, you will have the strength to overcome the evil one. So how does the Word of God abiding in me help me when I'm tempted to believe God is bad and sin is better? The Word of God abiding in you is Truth. 
would be, it's really simple. So Satan is telling lies. How do I battle these lies and overcome him? Well, you overcome lies with what? With truth. That's why John says in his gospel, you will know the truth, John 8, 32, and the truth will set you free. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, 17 about you and me. Sanctify them, God. Sanctify them. Grow them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the way the word of God abiding in us enables us to overcome the evil one is by remembering in the face of lies what the truth is. I feel with what feels like every fiber of my being that I have to do this sin right now. I feel like it is helpful and beneficial and I deserve it and it's good and I'm enslaved. But what is the truth? I'm not enslaved. What is the truth? This is not good. What is the truth? I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. What is the truth? This will not go well for me. What is the truth? This will result in guilt and shame. What is the truth? God will not be glorified and honored in this. So what's happening? The Word of God, if it, if, if it abides in me, I know and believe God's truth. What about when life feels like it's falling apart and, and, and circumstances feel like God has you under His thumb and the whisper from the enemy is, God doesn't love you. Wake up. Do you really think if God loved you, this would be happening to you right now? You, th you think you just make that up? That is the tactics of the evil one. It's demonic. How do you fight that? By the word of God abiding in you? No. God is good. No, 1 John 3, 1 tells me that God has lavished and will continue to lavish his love on me. No, the word of God tells me that, that yes, everything is from his hand and everything that is from his hand, no matter what it looks like or feels like, is for my good. No, whatever is happening to me, it is conforming me into the image of his son. It's making me more like Jesus. Th these are the truths to confront the lie that God is bad. And we need to believe him over and over and over again. So here's the conclusion. You read the verse again. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So the conclusion is this. It's a question and an, an admonition. The question is, does God's word abide in you? Does God's word abide in you? Are you abiding in God's word? The admonition is, Get into God's word. If you don't, you will not overcome the evil one. What John is talking about is not just knowing a couple verses, putting them on a flashcard, just bring them in front of you, 
every couple weeks. He's not talking about just doing the, the random monthly Bible read when you've got nothing else to do and there is nothing good on television, not on all 673 channels. The day has come, there's actually nothing good, nothing that you like on TV. There's nothing else to do. Last resort, you're actually not tired at 5.30 in the morning for once. Now I'm going to open it up. Where do I start? Oh, Holy Spirit, just guide my thumb today. Jesus, yes. You read a couple verses. Feel good, like you're abiding. That's not abiding in God's Word. That is not what John is talking about. I would encourage you, read God's Word every single day. God calls us to delight in God's Word, Psalm 1, and meditate on it day and night. You can't just get your Jesus on Sunday afternoon. You can't just do it reading our daily bread twice a week. You can't just do it reading verses that friends post on Facebook. You need to be, you can't just do it reading a book that quotes a lot of verses. You need to get into God's Word. And you need to read it over and over and over again. I would encourage you this year to link and to strive for prayer and reading God's Word. Read it every day. I posted something on the city today. So if you're not on the city, get on the city. If you're on the city, you can go and look tonight. But I posted a link to some Bible reading plans. And if you follow these Bible reading plans, you could read through the entire Bible this year. You could read through the entire Bible this year. I even let you know what Bible reading plan that I'm using. And I would encourage you to us as a church, unless you just don't like that plan, do the same plan. I think that would be great to know that many of us, if not all of us, are reading the same thing every day. We're reading the same scriptures every day. Our, our day is being informed by the same piece of God's Word. How would that affect our our communication and our communion and our, and our encouragement and our challenging of one another. So get on the city. Look at those Bible reading plans. You can even uh, download right into your iCal, right into Outlook. I've got it on my iPhone. Whatever you need just to make it easy for you and start reading God's Word every day because it is only by the Word of God abiding in us that we will be strong to overcome the evil one. I'll pray. And then we are at the point in our service of communion. If you're visiting with us, here's how we do communion. We have leaders up here who want to serve you. You can come and take the bread and the juice back to your seat. And then if you'd wait, we'll all take it together. We do have a couple things that we require. One is you need to be a Christian. So this isn't a snack. This is meant to be a, a renewing of the covenant that we have with Jesus. The relationship that we have with Jesus that was made possible and purchased by his death on the cross. And so we're remembering that through bread symbolizing his body and juice representing his blood. And so if you do not believe the gospel... It would be awful to take communion. The second thing that we require is that you are committed to a church. And we have to say that today in these days. You're committed to a church. If you're here and you've been here for a while and you're committed or, and you consider this to be your church family, or if you're visiting but you have another church family, then you are welcomed. You are welcome to have this family meal with us. But if not, and if you're not 
committed and you're just sort of hopping, we would say that you need to become committed to a family and commit to people and submit to leaders and then have this, what really is a family meal with us. I'll pray. We'll share that meal together. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. We're thankful for this meal that we're about to take together. God, we're thankful for the the example you set, Jesus, with your disciples before you were crucified. You commanded them, you commanded us to do this to remember you and to remember the cross. And so for 2,000 years, God, we have been doing it ever since. God, sober us as we prepare for this. May we not take it lightly or flippantly. Help us to remember what this signifies. Help us to remember the cross, to be thankful for the cross. We love you, and we give you all praise, glory, and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bah.